Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and it's February 1st. As usual, I'm talking today to Motley Fool healthcare specialist, Todd Campbell, who is calling in via Skype. How are you, Todd? Hi, Christine. Can you believe that it's February already? No, absolutely not. crazy January. Yeah, it's been so packed with news and excitement that I feel like it just flew by. Amazing. I mean, at this pace, I think we'll wake up tomorrow morning, it'll be 2018. It wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) So let's dive right in. We have two focuses for our show today, Teva Pharmaceutical and Biogen. We'll get to Biogen in a little bit, but let's open up first with what is Israel's largest company, Teva. Yeah, a giant, giant company, Uh, not just in Israel either. I mean, this is a worldwide drug manufacturer, creates generic drugs to some of the the best known uh, medicine that's sold throughout the planet. And what we're going to talk about today is a challenge to its best selling drug. Which is kind of an interesting story for a lot of reasons. First of which, this therapy, the the best-selling drug, is a branded therapy. It's called Capaxone, and it's actually the most common multiple sclerosis therapy. Um, But as you mentioned, this is fundamentally a generics company, so kind of interesting there that they have this one drug, which is a branded therapy and accounts for 20% of their overall revenue. Right. This is a, a monster drug in its indication. It's used to treat multiple sclerosis. And this drug has been on the market since 1996. So this is getting a little bit long in the tooth, as you can imagine. And because it's getting long in the tooth, that means that it's being exposed to uh, patent expiration and the threat of companies that normally it's on the, you know, on the dishing end of this, but now it's on, um, uh, on the receiving end of these generic threats to this drug. Right. It's kind of an ironic situation. And they've actually been very strategic in how they've handled it. So the version that was approved in 1996 was a 20 milligram formulation of the drug. And it is a, a daily subcutaneous injection. So all of a sudden, it's nearing its patent expiration. And Teva says, you know what? I don't want other companies doing to us what we tend to do to them, meaning develop a generic. So what they did was they created a 40 milligram version of the same drug, which then you only need to inject three times a week. So going from daily to only three times a week, that's a huge improvement. And so they're very successful in switching most of its patients to this new formulation. In fact, yeah, that was kind of like a ta-da moment, right, Christine? Yeah, it's like ta-da. Here's here's this new and improved. Yeah, and and you know. Um, you could, I, you could argue, and the, you know, new, improved, better than ever. Yeah, um, you, you could argue the, whether or not it's worth having a new patent just for a slight tweak to the drug, but that is well, the case. Well, yes, Christine, and that's exactly what they're doing, right? Yes. I mean, this is exactly what they're doing. So the 20 milligram version lost patent exp- uh, patent protection. That cleared the way for Novartis uh, via its Sandoz um, uh, generic drug unit in Momenta to collaborate and launch Glatopa, a competitor to that 20 milligram version. But again, the ta-da moment, being able to reduce patient burden by shrinking it from a daily injection to a, uh, once, uh, you know, a every three-day injection, um, that's a huge selling point with patients. Uh, and it basically has trumped the discount of being able to pay less and get Glatopa versus that 20 milligram uh, formulation. So this has allowed Teva to protect for the last two years or a year and a half, 
about four billion a year in sales. And that's all coming back uh, in jeopardy again because these generic manufacturers have come out and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you shouldn't approve new patents on this drug. The drug is the same. It's just the formulation uh, with a larger dose that's allowing this to have a, a, a longer half-life. Exactly. So just to be very clear, Glatopa, the generic competitor, is competing only with the 20 milligram for now. And so what this new argument is about is whether or not they should also be able to compete with the 40 milligram version. Um, so last September, a patent review board invalidated three of four patents that were protecting the longer lasting version until 2030. And then just on Monday, which was the 30th of January, a district court overturned four patents on the 40 milligram version, which will probably end up being appealed by Teva, and that could add months or even years to this whole argument. The company says that it will probably keep these generics from competing with its long-lasting version until 2018, but still, Momenta and Novartis can launch as soon as the FDA approves. And there's a little bit of risk there with if you launch and then eventually Teva wins its appeals process, then these two companies could end up having to to make up uh, lost sales to Teva and pay them a bunch of money. But it, it's kind of you know un- uncharted territory here. Like we, it, it's muddy waters. Yeah, they've got to figure out how much risk they want to take, meaning they being Mylan and these other generic companies. Do they want to wait uh, potentially a year and get the an, an all clear that they're good to go? Or do they want to roll this out sooner than that and potentially pocket hundreds of millions of dollars? In the beginning of January, uh, Teva's management sat down with investors and outlined a, a particular scenario. What would happen to our forecast for for Copax on sun, uh, Copax, easy for me to say, on, on sales if uh, a generic version hit and was launched in February. And what they determined or what they said could happen is that it could create a $1 billion drag on sales in 2017 and could knock 65 cents or more off of its earnings projections. Now, I don't think that, my personal opinion is that we probably will see these companies wait uh, until they have the all clear. Uh, because I, I think there's very, but again, there's a very good likelihood that the that the appeals uh, fall short. I mean, you know, Teva tried to delay the launch of the 20 milligram version um, with all sorts of legal maneuvering, and that fell short. So why would you think that these will actually hold through and and protect this drug until 2030? I think there's a very good likelihood that Teva's sales are gonna, in the short term, face some pretty pretty stiff headwinds once these uh, generics roll out. I would agree, especially when you look at the political climate and you consider how much pressure there is for drug prices to come down. I can see that having a little bit of an influence on these cases and and trying to get that generic version out there at a discount to the, the branded price. Let's take a minute to consider Teva as a whole now. So, Copaxone is a very important part of this company, but it's not the entire company. Um, where, where your, where's your head out regarding Teva as a, an investment as a whole? I think it's too risky to jump in right now until we get a little bit more clarity in when those generics may launch. And I'm saying that from a short term, I got my short term glasses on when I say that, right? If I put my long term glasses on, then I guess I would change my mind a little bit and say, well, let's see how this shakes out, see how much the stock sells down. Um, you know, if we assume that not all of the um, sales will float 
flow to the generics and they'll maintain some sales. And, you know, maybe there's a headwind of a billion or two billion. You know, that's that's a lot smaller of a headwind than it was maybe a few years ago. Um, before they also had acquired Actavis generic units. So, you know, you're still talking about a big chunk of revenue and a big part of their operating profit, and that creates a big short-term risk. But they do have a lot of opportunities to roll out biosimilars, which we've talked about in the show uh, before, which are basically, uh, we'll call them generic alternatives to some of the top-selling biologic drugs that are available today for, for conditions like cancer, et cetera. Uh, and they also have some intriguing stuff going on in the research pipeline, and asthma and pain management, migraines. Those could be top sellers, too. So I think you need to stay on the sidelines here, watch, see how this plays out, see where the stock settles out. And if you can buy this thing for, you know, we'll call it bargain prices, uh, if these generics launch, so then maybe I would step up, up at that point for a long-term portfolio. Right, and I'll also point out. I think you make great, great, great. Yeah, excuse me, great points. I'll add to it that the company is trading for just six and a half times this year's earnings estimates, and it pays out a four percent dividend yield, which isn't growing a ton, but it only used twenty eight percent of its free cash flow in the past four quarters to pay it. So it seems like that's pretty safe. And if you already hold Teva, I, I would say you probably want to just keep on holding on to it, if it were me, anyway. So, we wanted to tell the Teva story because we found it really interesting. There's the irony of a generics company fighting against generics. It's just, I don't know, I thought it was a good story. But the next section of our show comes directly from a listener request we got via email. Um, if you want to email us with a request of your own or any questions you have, you can always hit us up at industryfocus@fool.com. So, here we go. Tom from Davis, California wrote in, and he asked us to do an update on Biogen. Their earnings came out last Thursday, and Tom had a ton of questions uh, regarding Biogen and its future, which is going to make for a really interesting story as well. So, thanks, Tom, for writing in. Uh, do you want to start with earnings, Todd? Well, Biogen obviously is one of the largest biotech companies in the world, um, so it's probably not much of a surprise to know that you know they rack up billions of dollars a year in sales. You know, total revenue last year was 11.4 billion, and that was up about six percent from 2015. And if you back out the negative drag of, of currency conversion on sales that occurred overseas, total revenue was actually up about nine percent, which is pretty solid growth for a company of this size. You know, a little background here for people maybe who aren't familiar with Biogen. The reason that Biogen became such a large player in biotech is because it is the biggest drug maker of therapies used to treat multiple sclerosis. So that market is valued at about 19 billion, and uh, you know, Biogen controls uh, better than a third of that across all of its different multiple sclerosis drugs. Right, and so when you look at their earnings. You kind of have to break it down into top line, bottom line here. They had fairly sluggish revenue. It was only up 1% year over year to $2.87 billion in the fourth quarter, but that was very much made up for by reduced expenses. And if you take a look at their adjusted earnings, and adjusted as in non GAAP, they had to take out some things that were affected by a settlement with Forward Pharma over some patents. Anywho, when you get to adjusted EPS, then they had a 12% increase year over year in the fourth quarter, which, as you mentioned, for a company this size is really solid. And I think the one story that you really need to focus on here with Biogen, particularly given that today is the day, Biogen is spinning off its hemophilia franchise into 
I shouldn't even say is spinning off, as of today, has spun off this company called BioVerative as a standalone company that will focus on hemophilia. So, uh, how are you thinking about this spinoff? It's a really interesting decision on their part because you know the drugs that are being spun out, uh, electo, um, elect, wow, I'm stumbling over all these words, lactate and Alprolix, those two hemophilia drugs are their fastest growing drugs in their product lineup. So they've decided to take this part of their business and spread it out so that they can, I guess, focus more on these neurological disorders uh, like multiple sclerosis, and we'll talk about in a minute things like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and whatever. That's going to be what's left at Biogen. And then they're taking these smaller drugs that are less core but are also very fast growing and spending it off. And there, I think that there's some intriguing reasons of why they're doing that. It's kind of speculative on my part. But I think that the reason that they're doing is this is an in, increasingly competitive market. Um, just to back up for a second, those two hemophilia drugs from Biogen reshaped hemophilia treatment. Again, but you know, similar to a conversation we were just having on the previous uh, part of the show, um, reducing the patient burden by l uh, uh, lowering the number of doses of the medicine that they need to take every week. And by doing that, the, in reshaping that and reducing the patient burden, these drugs have um, really taken off and become pretty meaningful drugs. Combined, they generate over 800 million in sales uh, last year. And this is a pretty big indication. There's 400,000 people in the world affected by hemophilia. Um, and, and so this company launched today, its ticker, if you're interested, is BIVVV, three Vs at the end there. Um, and how the spinoff works is that Biogen shareholders at the close of business on January 17th received one share of the new company for every share, every two shares that they had of Biogen. Did I get that ratio right? Yeah, and I think that one of the things too, I mean, the, probably the biggest question on people's minds, Christine, right now, is that since it was a spinoff, do I hold these shares, right? Like if you're a Biogen investor right now, you've just received these shares in this new spinoff, should you keep it or, or not? Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, one interesting thing to keep in the back of your mind is that, again, I was talking about the, the competitive landscape. While these two drugs reshape treatment, all of the other hemophilia players have also been developing their longer lasting formulations as well. And those have all been hitting the, the, the market and becoming available over the course of the last 12 months. So 2017, 2018, we could see a, a much uh, more drastic slowing in the top line growth for this new company. And people are gonna have to keep that in mind. And then on the other side of that, they have to say, okay, well, we also know that because it's so competitive, there's been a lot of acquisition activity. You know, Shire spent a truckload of money to buy Bixalta, one of the largest players in the space, uh, just a couple of years ago. So it wouldn't be too shocking. And that, that was also a spinoff, by the way. That was spun off by uh, Baxter. So it wouldn't be too shocking to me if this company um, maybe ends up becoming a target at some point in the next couple of years. Now, that's not a reason to hold the stock necessarily, but it's something probably to keep in the back of your mind. Great. So what about Biogen itself? And this is actually one of Tom's questions directly. He says, is Biogen less valuable or is it potentially more focused after the spinoff? I think one of the biggest questions that I have about Biogen right now is, uh, it actually is due to a competitor. Celgene's been working on a drug um, that's taken orally for multiple sclerosis and data is expected in the first half of this year. If that data is good, then theoretically you've got uh, what could be or could prove to be a best-in-class solution that puts <clears throat> reshapes, if you will, 
um, the oral market for MS drugs. And as a reminder or a fresher, in case you don't follow this company closely, one of the best-selling drugs at Biogen is Tecfidera. Tecfidera rakes in about $4 billion a year, and it is the leading oral drug right now. So we have to watch very carefully here over the course of the next few months what comes out of Celgene, because there could be a big threat in 2018 to Biogen's growth because of that drug. So I think that it's great to see that Biogen is more focused, um, but there is a threat there that we need to be aware of especially since there isn't a tremendous amount of news flow expected in 2017 regarding Biogen's pipeline. Exactly. They don't have a lot of short-term opportunities to, to prove that they have more firing power if they were potentially to lose market share in MS. The one thing that could potentially be a big growth driver for this company is a drug called Spinraza, which was just approved on December 23rd for SMA, which is uh, spinal muscular atrophy. This could be a huge, huge drug. I believe we actually talked about it on the show because it's priced at $750,000 a year, which is just a mind-blowing price tag. Todd, what do you think the odds are that this drug will succeed? I think it's very. the odds are probably very good. I mean, there's no treatments for this indication. You, know, you get 13,000 new cases a year, about 20,000 people in Europe and the U.S., uh, with the with the with the condition now uh, that can be addressed by this drug, yes, it's not cheap, but I think negotiations will happen. And you know, even if you take a conservative and say, okay, well, you know, at five hundred thousand dollars a year, you don't need a lot of patients to turn this into a billion dollar drug. Now, Biogen's going to have to share some of that in royalties to its co develop the drug's co developer, Ionis Pharmaceuticals. Uh, but this still could be a I think, a nine-figure drug relatively quickly and potentially a 10-figure drug over the course of uh, the next two or three years. So that would be one really nice uh, piece of upside and obviously would replace a lot of the lost sales uh, from spinning off those two hemophilia drugs, which, uh, again, you know, contributed over $800 million in, in sales last year. Right. And management agrees with you as well. I'll, I'll point out that the CEO on the latest call said that Spinraza is, and I, I quote here, Biogen's most exciting commercial opportunity for 2017. Um, he noted that in the early part of its launch, that reimbursement is choppy, but ultimately, this is a necessary drug. The patients have no other options, and so I, I really don't see insurers pushing back much on this price. They'll be slow to roll it out, and I'm sure that they're going to try and put some blocks to try and make sure, kind of like we've seen with some of the other high-priced drugs have launched. But yeah, I, th I think that ultimately, this is going to be a nine-figure drug or better. And that that's going to be, you know, maybe the brightest spot for the company as far as a story over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Again, though, the, the big question is what's in the pipeline for Biogen uh, further out? What news could be coming and, and what's going to happen on the competitive landscape and multiple sclerosis? And how will that shake out as far as market share in the next year or two, too? Right. And speaking of the pipeline, I think there's one drug that we can't talk about Biogen without mentioning the potential and the opportunity here. This drug is called aducanumab, and it is still in development in trials, and it, it's a treatment for Alzheimer's, which, if you've been following the healthcare landscape, you know this is a heartbreaking disease to try to treat. I mean, these, these drugs get so close to the finish line, and then they fail time and time again. And so, Biogen's candidate targets the same target as Eli Lilly's recently failed drug, uh, which is called uh, the 
target is called amyloid. But there are some key differences between the Biogen drug and Lilly's failed drug that hopefully, for the sake of patients and also, I guess, also for shareholders of this company, those could be pivotal. Yeah, I mean, there were they were Biogen's management was asked specifically about this. How is your drug different than the one that just failed at Eli Lilly? And Biogen's response was, well, there are a couple different reasons that are important here. One, um, Lilly's drug had trouble passing through the the blood-brain barrier and getting to the brain where those plaques build up. So they claim that their drug, Biogen's drug, uh, doesn't face that risk; that it does pass through and does reach the brain and therefore could become be more efficacious in in breaking down these these plaques that are thought to be behind the disease. The other thing that they brought up or another thing they brought up was that the endpoint that the okay but what the trial was designed to prove uh, is different in their trial versus Eli Lilly's trial. And because they are using a different endpoint that they think they have a better chance of delivering the goods on, um, that this trial may not fail in the same way that Lilly's drug failed. Uh, Time will tell. Uh, We've talked about this on the show. Alzheimer's disease is an incredibly important indication, very limited treatment options, nothing that slows disease progression. Um, So there's a big, big unmet need. But if you look at the 2002 to 2012 time period, more than 99% of the drugs that have gone into clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease have not panned out. So there's an incredible amount of risk associated with this. Right. Huge risk, but also huge potential upside. And if you're a shareholder of this company or considering an investment, it's a drug that you'll want to keep your eyes on. So that will do it for today. We are just about out of time. Thank you so much, Todd, and thanks to everyone tuning in. As I mentioned earlier, feel free to email the team if you have any comments or questions. Our email address is industryfocus@fool.com. Also, a quick shout out to everyone that has already written in in the past week or so. We've heard from Laura M, Ben W, Mark K, Sam M, and many more. You guys are awesome. You're a lot of fun to hear from. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!